For our final lap around the track, we'll talk beginnings, endings, and greyhounds. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken. The engagement premiered on September 14th, 1985, the very first episode of the Golden Girls' first season. It was written by Susan Harris and directed by Jay Sandridge. The engagement is a little unusual for a TV pilot in that the story involves the principal characters potentially going their separate ways. We've just met these people, and already Blanche is ready to get married to some guy, and Rose and Dorothy are talking about moving into their own place. Meanwhile, Sophia's old age home is burned down, and she just shows up out of the clear blue sky to cause chaos for the girls and their helpful homosexual housekeeper, Coco. By the end, Blanche's perfect boyfriend turns out to be a bigamist, with the message delivered by future Designing Women co-star Meshach Taylor, and the girls stay together. With Sophia moving in full-time and forging an unlikely and slightly offensive friendship with Coco. Ma, you want to join us? Nope. I got a rest. I got a date tonight. Uh, with whom? The fancy man and I are going to the dog track. <laughs> Your mother bets? No, she rides. She's a dog jockey. Let's go. <laughs> We have already covered Susan Harris's hilarious pilot script that reinvigorated her passion for television. We went over the trade Rue McClanahan and Betty White made in which they would break away from old, comfortable character types and forge iconic new ones. We talked about the quest to get the actual B. Arthur to play a character described in the script as a, quote, B. Arthur type. And we spent a great deal of time talking about how a virtually unknown stage actress named Estelle Getty took the entire production by storm from the moment she auditioned. But we haven't really talked about Coco, the ill-fated houseboy who was the second character to appear on screen on an episode of The Golden Girls, and then who was never seen nor spoken of ever again. Right from the very beginning, even before he first offered the idea of a show about four older ladies living in Florida called Miami Nice to producers Susan Harris, Paul Junger Witt, and Tony Thomas... NBC chief Warren Littlefield was insistent that there be a gay housekeeper. His reasoning was that after being wives and moms for their entire adult lives, the girls wouldn't want to do any more housework. Also, Miami was a diverse, hip city, and if any setting would welcome an openly gay character, that would be it. Littlefield was also in luck that Harris had a background in bringing gay characters to TV, having created Billy Crystal's role of Jody on her previous sitcom, Soap. Casting Coco was a more involved process than writing it. A host of notable actors tried out for the part, including a pre-Ferris Bueller Jeffrey Jones and stand-up comic-slash-actor Paul Provenza, who would finally be cast in a Wit Thomas Harris sitcom eight years later when he became Carol's steady boyfriend Patrick on Empty Nest. The part of Coco finally went to Chicago-born actor Charles Levin, who was suggested by NBC president Brandon Tartikoff. Levin was already an experienced stage, movie, and TV performer, with parts on Family Ties, This Is Spinal Tap, and 22 episodes of Alice as Vera's boyfriend, Elliot. 
He also had a leg up on Coco thanks to his affecting portrayal of gay street hustler and snitch Eddie Gregg on Hill Street Blue. When he came in to read for the part, Levin was told by director Jay Sandrich, a veteran of TV comedy going back decades, to play Coco without any flamboyant flourishes despite what was written on the page. Confused but dutiful, Levin followed the instructions and suspected he bombed the audition. But he was called back for a second shot and he was asked to inhabit Coco as he had inhabited Eddie Gregg. To the surprise of no one, that got him the gig. From the first table read, Levin bonded with Getty, who was the only one in the room with just about zero TV experience. Throughout the pilot's two tapings, famously anxious Getty was convinced that she had been blowing it and told Levin, quote, if it's between me and you, Chuck, you're obviously staying. I'm gone. End quote. But just the opposite was happening. Getty was such a hit as Sophia and forced her way so powerfully into the show that when producers looked at the footage to begin editing it down for air, they determined that the house on Richmond Street just wasn't big enough for the five of them. Additional Coco scenes got cut, including one in which he complains about a bad date and Sophia first invites him to accompany her to the dog track. What was left for him in the final edit was preparing food and lots of standing around looking supportive. He's kind of along for the ride while the girls drive the store. So a tough decision was made, and it was producer Paul Witt who delivered the painful phone call to Charles Levin that this wasn't going to work out. Witt later said in Golden Girls Forever, quote, Charles Levin was a terrific actor and was terrific in the part, but we had too much. We couldn't possibly service all five regular characters adequately. It would have been unfair. And in one of her memoirs, Betty White doesn't disagree with any of the reasonings for Coco's departure, but she did feel bad for Charles Levin on a level any actor could sympathize with. Quote, Can you imagine the disappointment of seeing a show picked up, then finding out you were no longer a part of it? He took it in good spirit, bless him, and came to the set to say hello from time to time. As for us, we spent the first year explaining that he hadn't been written out because he was gay, which, just for the record and who cares, Chuck wasn't. Levin would later call Coco, along with Eddie Gregg, the best work he ever did on TV. He would also claim that NBC was pressured to take Coco off the Golden Girls due to homophobia and fears about presenting a gay character on a weekly sitcom. Just a few years prior to the show's premiere, the network had reworked a series based on the Tony Randall-starring TV movie Love, Sydney, in which Randall's character had been written as implicitly gay. When the show went to air, the character of Sydney became an asexual celibate thanks to a bigoted executive afraid of losing sponsorship dollars. While that sinister reasoning is certainly plausible, it's also clear that there just weren't enough jokes to go around on the Golden Girls. Ironically, the girls having to do their own housework and doing home repairs and losing jobs and struggling to pay bills ended up grounding them for a mass audience and making them more realistic. Harris later said that she felt that, quote, a live-in houseboy might suggest that they were too well off, end quote. Any Coco lines in the subsequent episodes were split among the girls, although it's unclear how many there even were, and the show went on without him. Charles Levin continued to work frequently everywhere, and actually returned to Wit Thomas Harris' world in 1989 on an episode of Empty Nest. He appeared on Punky Brewster, Falcon Crest, and Designing Women, had recurring roles on 30-something, L.A. Law, and NYPD Blue, and starred in short-lived series Capital News and Karen's Song. He's also been in feature movies like The Golden Child, The Couch Trip, 
a civil action, and no holds barred. Levin may be best remembered, even better than he is as Coco, as the mentally unstable Moyle on Seinfeld's The Briss episode. Hold yourself! This is a Briss! We're performing a Briss here, not a burlesque show! This is not a school play! This is not a baggy pants farce! This is a Briss! A sacred ancient ceremony symbolizing the covenant between God and Abraham! Or something. <laughs> His stay may have been short, but it was legendary. Now, Coco the Houseboy is one of the classic TV trivia answers of all time. Gay representation in mainstream entertainment has come a long way and continues to improve every year. These days, Coco's being a gay TV character isn't nearly as unique as him being a houseboy. Seriously, what is a houseboy? It's just a weird thing to call someone. Switching gears, it's time to talk about dog racing, which has a long and interesting history and is as controversial today as it has ever been. Greyhounds can trace their breed's history back to ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. Evidence of them can be found in millennia-old grave sites and wall paintings. They're the only breed of dogs mentioned by name in the Bible. It's also believed that Odysseus's loyal dog in Homer's The Odyssey was a greyhound. After almost going extinct in the Middle Ages, greyhounds began being bred exclusively for royalty. They then became symbols of the aristocracy, as well as playmates of them. Sporting with greyhounds has existed almost as long as they have. Known for their speed and excellent vision, greyhounds had been the stars of a nearly ancient sport that came to be called coursing. A hare, or other small game animal or vermin, would be given a head start, and two dogs would then be sent off after it, with the winner being the one who caught it first. In the 16th century, a formal set of rules was established for coursing that awarded points for speed, kills, and other actions. Queen Elizabeth I was an advocate of coursing, which may explain why dog racing is sometimes called the sport of queens. It wasn't until the 19th century that the common folk could get in on the coursing action. The National Coursing Club of England says that the Waterloo Cup event of 1836 drew a crowd of about 80,000 people. The first straight track dog racing venue was built in Hendon, England in 1876. But it was in 1919 when everything changed for the sport. That was when Owen Patrick Smith, better known as OP, opened the first professional dog track in Emeryville, California. The oval course featured Smith's latest invention, an artificial hare that rode on a rail on the outside of the track. Smith had wanted to make things more humane for the poor rabbits that had been sacrificing their lives for the sport. What he ended up doing was taking dog racing to the height of its popularity. Within the next decade and change, 67 dog tracks would open up across the country thanks to Smith's system. The funny thing is, the sport wasn't even legal at the time. It's not surprising that Florida would be the first to legalize dog racing in 1931. It was followed by Oregon, Massachusetts, and Arizona. More states would be added to the list, despite legal and moral arguments against it. By the mid-1980s, 19 states allowed greyhound racing. At its peak, it was rated as the sixth most popular sport in America. I don't have any statistics in front of me, but dog racing sure came up on the Golden Girls a lot, certainly as often as baseball, football, or golf did, and way more than hockey or highlight. In fact, we don't have to wait long for a second reference after the first one from the pilot episode. Just 16 episodes later, we have The Truth Will Out, written by Susan Beavers. 
Rose's daughter Kirsten is arriving and bringing her daughter along with her. When Sophia learns Rose's granddaughter's name, the first thing she thinks of is shady dudes who she probably knows from around the dog track. Anyway, I'm glad I got back before Kirsten and Charlie got here. Who's Charlie? Rose's granddaughter. That's a girl's name? Charlie? That's a bookie's name. (laughs) Honey, she's named after Rose's husband. Rose's husband was a bookie? (laughs) He sold insurance. An even bigger racket. (laughs) The central conflict of the episode is Rose having to come clean to Kirsten about the financial state her husband Charlie left the family in when he died. At first... Rose lies to Kirsten, making matters worse. So she goes to her friends for advice, and Sophia has some sage words about stretching the truth. Oh, Kirsten wouldn't lie. I I raised her better than that. I mean, except for a little white lie, but that doesn't really count. Oh, yes, it does. A lie is a lie, which is a sin, which sends you straight to hell. (laughs) Who told a lie? Who hasn't? Me, I never lie. Ma, how much did you lose at the dog track last week? None of your business, and that's the truth. (laughs) In the end, Rose comes clean and Kirsten understands. And they take Charlie, the granddaughter, not the husband or a bookie, to lunch. Kirsten was played by future Beverly Hills 90210 mom Christina Belford, whom we talked a lot about in episode 21 of this podcast. Playing young Charlie was Bridget Anderson, who despite being about 10 years old at the time, already had a lengthy list of credits. After parts in a couple of TV movies, she made a splash as the title character in the 1982 family film Savannah Smiles, about a girl who gets abducted by a couple of knuckleheads who come to love her like a daughter. Anderson later co-starred in the short-lived Western series Gunshy, which was based on Disney's Apple Dumpling Gang movies. She guested on a bunch of shows, like The Golden Girls, and starred in TV movies throughout the 80s. Sadly, Anderson's story ended on a tragic note. Addicted to drugs since she was a teenager, she had been estranged from her family and working at a natural food store trying to get clean. In May of 1997, at the age of 21, Bridget Anderson died of an accidental overdose of heroin and alcohol. Truth Will Out writer Susan Beavers started out as a production assistant on Barney Miller before graduating to script supervisor on Soap. She also penned episodes of Whit Thomas Harris shows Empty Nest and Nurses, as well as episodes of Growing Pains, Give Me a Break, and Dharma and Greg. But Beavers' most sustained success was as a writer and producer on Two and a Half Men, where she wrote teleplays on stories for 80 episodes and acted as a producer on over 200. A funny bonus scene from Truth Will Out is available on YouTube, in which Betty White rehearses a scene with her on-screen granddaughter being replaced by one of the show's stage managers. Bridget Anderson wasn't available, so Doug Tobin stepped in and ad-libbed lines with White, who reciprocated by applying makeup and a hilarious amount of talcum powder to his face. Tobin recalls his experience and his YouTube infamy with a sense of humor. Quote, Looking back on that day, I realize how naive I was. I was a young kid and was trying to mess with Betty White? What was I thinking? This woman could destroy me in a second. As I got more serious about finishing the scene, I was hoping I hadn't pissed Betty off as well. In the moment, I wasn't sure what was happening. But looking at the clip, it's obvious she was just playing and having a good time. End quote. Betty White did not end up destroying Doug Tobin. He's still working in Hollywood, 
mainly as an assistant director on sitcoms. Most recently, he worked on the Will and Grace reunion series, but also has been behind the scenes on Two Broke Girls, The Bill Engvall Show, and Third Rock from the Sun, among many others. Five episodes after Truth Will Out, we have The Flu, written by James Berg and Stan Zimmerman. We've referenced this one a few times because it's amazing and an early Golden Girls classic. When Dorothy Blanche and Rose arrive at the Friends of Good Health Best Friend of the Year Award dinner, they're all in the throes of the most hellacious flu that's ever gripped Miami. Sophia, on the other hand, not only isn't sick, but is feeling great, thanks to her strapping young date, who has a dog racing connection. Tell me, where are you from, Raul? It's a pleasure to be here. speak much English. Ma, where did you beat him? He owns a flower shop next to the dog track. I won big yesterday, so I figured I'd treat myself and rent him a tuxedo. (laughs) Yeah, having fun, Raul? It's a pleasure to be here. He kills me. Sophia wins the Best Friend of the Year award, and after acknowledging her daughter and friends, takes a moment to rub Raul in everyone's faces. Raul was played by actor Marcelo Tuber, who at the time was known professionally as Mark Tuber. He's been extremely busy over the last 30 years, collecting over 140 credits in everything from soaps to dramas to sitcoms to animation voiceovers. His first on-screen role was as a hotel manager on Heart to Heart in 1983, and he just kept on going since then, playing lots of priests, doctors, diplomats, or foreign nationals from anywhere. Tubert did three episodes of ER as Father Joe Galloway, but you may have seen him more recently on NCIS, Jane the Virgin, or Prison Break. You may also know his voice from games like Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, Bioshock or Bioshock 2, or Diablo 3. Safe to say, he's probably said a lot more than just, it's a pleasure to be here, over all this time. Oh, by the way, stand-up comedian Dom Herrera who can be seen as the irritated waiter in The Flu, was another Coco hopeful and a candidate for the role of the gay houseboy during the show's embryonic stages. We'd have to wait four seasons for the next dog racing mention, and it came from an unlikely source. In season five's Great Expectations, written by Robert Bruce and Martin Weiss, Rose convinces Dorothy and Sophia to come to her positive thinking seminar with typically hilarious results. Meanwhile, Blanche is dating a man named Stephen, whom she really thinks she's falling in love with, so much so that she wants to look perfect for their next date. (laughs) Dorothy, do you think I'm dressed okay for the dog races? That depends. Are you competing? (laughs) Right after that exchange, Blanche gets a call telling her that Stephen is in the hospital after suffering a heart attack, and suddenly that budding love seems like a commitment she might not want to make. Playing Stephen was veteran actor Robert Mandan, whose career we discussed back in episode 16. Sadly, since that episode was posted, Mandan passed away after a long illness. He was 86 years old. Our final dog racing reference comes from Room 7, a season 7 episode written by Tracy Gamble and Richard Vaxi. Sophia is found choking, and as the girls try to revive her, she has either a vivid hallucination or a real near-death experience. She sees her husband Salvador and talks to him for a bit, but is soon pulled back to reality. The experience changes Sophia's mindset, and she's now focused on seizing the day, living for the now, and doing what she wants with the time she has left. 
Oh, hi, Ma. Where you been? Out. After yesterday, I decided to take the time and stop and smell the roses. Oh, that's nice, Ma. And you know where they have great roses? At the dog track in Lauderdale. <laughs> the A story of Room 7 is about Blanche returning to her grandmother's plantation house in Atlanta, which is scheduled for demolition. The jokes alternate between Blanche's emotional journey and letting go of things from her past, and Sophia flirting with danger by ordering possum and jumping off the house's roof into a haystack. But the two stories converge when Dorothy learns that faith and belief are powerful motivators, even if you're a skeptical outsider. The stories during the final seasons got pretty out there, and having an 80-something-year-old Sophia dive past a window definitely qualifies. Writer-producer Richard Vaxi admitted that they kept trying to push the envelope year after year as audiences demanded newer jokes and situations. But his partner Tracy Gamble says that Blanche's relatable and very real story made the ridiculousness of the Sophia storyline more palatable. The Golden Girls was never heavy on physical comedy, outside of a couple of dance numbers. So staging a stunt like that was a real challenge for director Peter D. Bates. It took a lot of trial and error to get the look of the dummy falling just right so that it appeared to be the real Sophia. The end result isn't exactly great, but it's probably the best it was ever going to be. Room 7 aired halfway through the show's final season, and it was Sid Melton's final appearance as Salvador Petrillo. Technically, and surprisingly, there are no dog tracks in Fort Lauderdale. Only seven states continue to allow greyhound racing and Florida is the center of that universe. Of the 19 active dog tracks in America, 12 reside in the Sunshine State. The first track was built there in 1921 at Hialeah, which we talked all about in episode 14 because of its horse racing history. Dog racing didn't last long there, ending in 1926, but more tracks came to St. Petersburg, Miami, Orlando, and Tampa by the end of the 1930s. By the early 1990s, States started outlawing greyhound racing either as a live event or via video simulcasting. Between 1995 and 2014, 14 states, including Guam, either actively prohibited the sport, preemptively banned it, or let its legal status expire without renewal. Many of those changes were brought on by activist groups or other grassroots efforts lobbying lawmakers to end the practice. In 1991, Greyhound Racing saw $3.5 billion a year in bets. By 2014, that number had dwindled to about $500 million a year, with the public finding lots of other ways to spend or lose their money. It's hard to quickly summarize all of the problems with dog racing, some of which have persisted since the time of Corson. There are the easy ones, obviously. The mob ties to guys like Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano the accusations of drugging dogs and fixing races to influence betting, and the gambling itself, which the sport first tried to distance itself from before acknowledging its importance to keeping tracks afloat. But those are all secondary to the substantial loss of life that comes with greyhound racing. It's long been standard operating procedure that dogs who have outlived their usefulness get put down. Believe it or not, the Golden Girls tackled this topic in one single very special episode. But before we can talk about that, we need to talk about the Golden Palace. And we'll do that next week on our series finale. See you then. (music) 
Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening.